0: this episode of the Unsettled Hunter podcast, I speak with Professor George Wenzel from McGill University in Montreal. Professor Wenzel has been conducting research in Nunavut for over 40 years. We discuss many issues related to hunting, and he tells a quite a poignant story to wrap up the episode. Thank you for listening.
1: So would you like
0: to introduce yourself?
1: My name is George Wenzel. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography, McGill University. Uh, my specialty is Inuit and other hunter-gatherer peoples, although, to be absolutely honest, I only work with Inuit. And uh, um, I take a very anthropological approach to what I do. i uh, been working in the north since about 1968, and my original work focused on the ecology of Inuit hunting. It's broadened out over time to the economics of hunting, looking at management issues, and how Inuit um, have adapted the contemporary econo- ec- economic and political situation or adapted to the, the, the fairly recent political and, and economic constraints that affect hunting.
0: Interesting. So you were telling me before, a little bit before we started recording, about how you got into this research. Perhaps we'll go a little bit chronologically and then jump around from there. So (laughs) so how did you get into
1: this? (laughs) Well, I came north uh, working as an archaeologist when I was a student. I started as an undergraduate. I had the opportunity to work first in the Yukon in North Alaska, and uh, then over in... uh, the west side of Hudson Bay. And while I was in Hudson Bay, uh, there would be occasionally Inuit coming by. And um, I guess my first experience hunting with Inuit was a beluga whale hunt, which somehow, I just hopped in a boat basically for the company. And uh, never thought I would be actually doing research on hunting. And, and the following year, I had a chance to do a collection for a museum in the United States, Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. On, uh, they, wanted a, they were revamping their northern hall, uh, and they wanted traditional Inuit artifacts, but made with modern materials. So, kudlik, seal oil lamps made out of the top of oil drums, harpoons made out of skidoo steel or brass, and so forth. And so I had this small contract, and uh, which eventually took me to Baffin Island, basically, uh, to do a collection for them. And I only—I had the intention of being gone about a month. And as it turned out, I—I I flew to Clyde River, I uh, had to wait around in what was then Frobisher Bay, now Achaluit, for several weeks, and got into Clyde, uh, and began to do the collection, and at that time, there was still an indigenous community about 60 kilometers north of Clyde River as the crow flies, and that was the place to do a collection, I figured, so I went up to, it was called Abadil, and there was an extended family of about 25 people up at Abadil, and so I went up there and began the collection and so on, and these were people who only came into the government village, Clyde River, every three or four months to trade. In fact, I had met them. Uh, they had come in to work on the sealift, lift the Hudson's Bay Company resupply, which I was working on as well. Everybody was toting boxes and so on. It was a good way to meet people. And so I went out to Abadiuk and it was quite clear that once I was there, I was there until the people went back in, which was several months. And, uh, it didn't much matter because the next airplane in decline came four months later after I arrived. <laughs> and by that time, I had decided to, I became fascinated with Inuit kinship, uh, not so much in the usual way, but rather how kinship regulated so many aspects of Inuit life, including hunting and the overall economy, who you hunted with very much related to kinship, sharing, and so on. And so uh, that first trip I was up for about a year and a half uh, living at Abatiuk and came south, enrolled here at McGill in a doctoral program. And then I was back and forth to Clyde over the next year and a half for about eight, nine months, mainly at Abatiuk. And then uh, the people there chose to move into the government village and I began to focus my research on the government community, which had about, if you included the people from Abutu, maybe 270 people at that time. And fully expecting to see a completely different situation. Uh, people there, when I lived at Abutu, people had not mechanized yet. So they were still using dog teams, living inside Kama uh, houses, using seal oil lamps. No, no other source of heat or light I think we had one kerosene primus stove that we used when we were out hunting to, we would make tea but when we were uh, in, in the village we only had s- s- excuse me a moment <coughs> <laughs> we're now back <laughs> so uh, and most of my work at that time was focused on hunting and the agreement I had with the people from Abateok was, uh, well, if I was going to be there living with them, I had to work. And work was hunting. They were had very little interest, in fact, in what I was doing. <laughs> no one spoke. The only English spoken there were things they traded for in the Hudson's Bay Company store. And I had three words of a when I arrived, which were seal, polar bear, and caribou. And so it was also a matter of learning the language as well as uh, learning how to hunt. Uh, It was mostly since I arrived in early September, uh, there were a a few weeks of open water hunting, mainly for seal. And then everything was breathing hole hunting uh, through the ice for ring seal using harpoons, which was completely foreign to me. You know you study these things, you have no idea how nuanced that f- any kind of hunting is until you try it. But anyway, as I was saying, I moved into Clyde River after Ab the people from Ab moved in and fully expected with the presence of snowmobiles and so on, I would see a very different system and but it, within the space of a couple of months, I came to the conclusion that uh things weren't very different, just the artifacts were different. Snowmobiles substituted for dog teams, but people were using them for the same thing, which wasn't simply hunting as such. And yes, they were using them for hunting. There, At Clyde, there were only six wage jobs for Inuit at the time. But hunting supported a social economy that we typically call sharing, which is a much more complex thing than generalized sharing. And so I began to do comparative work between uh, what I had seen at Abatiuk, what I was seeing at Clyde, and of course with technology changes and so on and so forth. began. There was constant every few years you would see more nuanced aspects of the system, and how especially how people were adapting the the artifacts to fit their purposes. Uh, one of the interesting things about the snowmobile was for the first four or five years that I was observing and hunting with people uh, In when we were using snowmobiles was that people hunted pretty well the way we did at Abadouk, which was a group of four to five hunters, which would be about the optimum group in breathing hole hunting, given what the re- – we were averaging about one seal every one to two trips. And uh, – after four or five years, I began to notice that instead of five hunters going out together, you would have perhaps two hunters, sometimes only one snowmobile, and one hunter would position himself at an active breathing hole, and we would always look for a cluster of breathing holes and the other hunter would use the snowmobile, drive in a circle, maybe a hundred hundred and fifty meters in circumfer or in diameter to keep seals away from those outer holes. So people Mm -hmm. were actually using the snowmobile as a substitute for labor. And in in a sense then, you could have three pairs of hunters out, for instance, instead of five hunters or six hunters together. So I began to look at how actually, the general view from the South was the snowmobile was a culture changer amongst many other things that people perceive as culture changers. My view was that, especially given centralization, uh, which was Canadian government policy that began in the late 1940s, early 1950s, that most of the communities that we see on the map of, say, Nunavut today didn't exist until the government centralized them. They were at Hudson's Bay posts and so on, but they were not positioned for hunting. When I lived at abad We traveled by dog team, most of our hunting was on the sea ice for seals. We never traveled more than an hour, an hour and a half to hunt. So we could spend seven, eight hours out hunting with very little travel time. At Clyde, for instance, because the uh, best breathing hole area was about 35 kilometers away and dog teams are clipping along at maybe five kilometers if you're lucky, it would be impossible to maintain a hunting culture using dog teams in that situation so the social history of uh, in a sense there's a social history to Inuit adapting the snowmobile to continue to do very traditional things which is not just hunting but a whole economy which is revolves around kinship and re- various social relations and things have just sort of clipped along from there I mean I've done other kinds of research but I've always been involved in Inuit hunting uh, which is probably unusual for a non-Inuk, uh, but every everyone doing research finds a way to make a connection with the community. And for me, it was learning to hunt and also eating country food, because mm-hmm. when I lived at Abaduk, we only ate what we hunted. We had some flour for bannock. We drank tea, and we smoked, and that was about the long <laughs> and the short of it. And uh, everything else was... Seal, polar bear, whatever seasonally we were hunting, and so that that's always continued, and and so uh, uh, and there are rules of distribution and so on, and I practice those. I still I don't do very much hunting anymore. I'm kind of old, but uh, so I send young people out to go yeah. hunt, like the, like everybody else, all the other older people. But I still have a very close connection with several extended families, and when I do hunt, I, whatever I catch, I take to the head of the extended family, and it it be, it gets redistributed according to the, the rules of distribution. And and so on. Uh, you were mentioning uh, uh, that that. What attracted you was work that I did on polar bear management. And I have to confess, that was really one of my graduate students. Uh, my interest, actually, I had been involved in polar bear hunting. But Abba and from Clyde, probably been on 100 polar bear hunts in my life. But I became very interested as it became increasingly difficult for Inuit to earn money from traditional activities. When I lived at, Abbot, we traded seal skins the occasional polar bear but everyone was well off of course actual needs of, of imported goods were very very small uh, but hunters could actually earn up to $5,000 which in those days was a lot of money. A Skadoob cost under $1,000 uh, so uh, but beginning by the early 1980s 1983, to be precise, the European market for sealskins, as I think anyone older than about 30, 35 might know about, collapsed because of a boycott, uh, which was instigated by several animal rights groups or and environmental groups. Uh, the the primary group was the International Fund for Animal Welfare, but Greenpeace Canada was involved as well. And I, for about 10 years, did research on the uh, impact of the European boycott on Inuit. Um, uh, I won't go into that, but it, 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 it took me to Greenland, it took me to a lot of communities. Uh, in almost every community in Nunavut and almost every Inuvialuit community in the Northwest Territories as well. But I always used Clyde River, if you will, as my case study community because I knew it so well. But then I was looking for comparative information everywhere from West Greenland to uh, Saks Harbor on Banks Island and so on. And, but always going back to Clyde and, and um, one of the things that became apparent was that that um, new strategies had to develop because uh, of essentially a uh, um, constraints around capturing money through hunting what most people don't realize was that with the trade in seal skins, which only began in 1962. It had a very short life, from 62 to 83, uh, where Inuit could, act, where there was a, a, a market for sealskins. skins. They, seal skins were seen as a valuable commodity uh, by Europeans and, and not other non-Inuit uh, Kalunat. Um, Inuit actually were producing prodigious amounts of food and the f- skins were essentially byproducts. You can only use so many seal skins. And their main, their main utility is for boots and mittens. They are not very good at, for clothing. Um, seals are insulated with fat. They're not insulated by, by fur or hair, at least ring seals. And consequently, um, most seal skins really had no domestic value. You fed them to the dogs. So the ring seal was sort of a perfect commodity if you will you produced high quality food in large amounts and you could produce money and if you needed more money you could do more hunting Uh, consequently probably more well, in fact more seals were hunted at Clyde and most other communities than could be consumed but that surplus represented security because you never knew if you were going to be able to hunt the next day uh, in 1972, uh, when I lived at Abu we experienced a month when we could not go hunting because of poor environmental conditions. And quite literally, people were down to boiling the seal skins they had kept for trade in order to make soup.
0: Hmm.
1: So food security was very low at that time uh, in that particular instance. Uh, and. Based on data I've accumulated over the years, for instance, in 1980, which was one of the, just about the high point of the sealskin trade, uh, when Inuit were earning $5,000 strictly from sealskins, not all Inuit by any means, but the most active hunters were. They were also producing in the Baffin region, which encompassed 13 communities, approximately 1,100 grams of food per day. This is country food, so-called, or what Inuit would call nak real food. <laughs> and uh, by 1985, after the collapse of the seal skin market, for instance, in Clyde River, where uh, uh, the, the annual production of, this is from all species, because the snowmobile that you would use for s- seal hunting was also used for other kinds of hunting as well for instance, where they were producing almost 900 grams in in the early 1980s. By 1985, it had dropped to about 500 grams. And in the year 2001, it was barely 300 grams. Hmm. So while that's still a lot of meat per person per day, there's very little margin for when there are problems. The difference is that now the store has much more In 19, even in 1980, the amount of imported food was pretty scant and not a whole lot that Inuit wanted. Uh, There was almost no fresh food at all. But the other side of it is that uh, uh, hunting has become quite expensive, especially because money is the scarcest commodity in the north. There's much more money around but access to it is skewed in a way that didn't exist in the 1970s. Almost everyone hunted. Even the wage earners hunted. Uh, An allowance was made for days off so somebody could go hunting if he had a a wage job. That's no longer the case uh, because jobs are so scarce and there's such a demand for jobs and anybody who looks at the statistics on employment in the North will see that Officially, unemployment in almost every community runs somewhere 15 to 25%. The reality is that unemployment and underemployment, it's closer to 50%, which means people without money, the guys without jobs have time, they don't have money. The guys with jobs have money, they don't have time. And this has become a real issue in the North, not necessarily between Inuit, but in terms of maintaining that rich food economy okay inuit live a mixed food economy just like they mix uh, overall it's a mixed economy there's a monetized sector there's a traditional resource sector the same is true in the food system there's a market sector and there's lots of things in there mostly garbage food uh, and there's a traditional resource sector but because of the the Skewed access to money. Most of the population, uh, in terms of the market uh, uh, foods, is making, are, are choosing, what we would call energy dense foods, uh, with the consequence which has health consequences and so on. Um, and in fact, you c- can look at literature around. Inuit today, and much of that, especially in the diet and nutrition literature, is about Inuit making poor food choices. In fact, for people without much money and access to country food, except occasionally, even through sharing, uh, because the population has exploded uh, since I started working in Nunavut and certainly in Clyde River, choosing to buy a candy bar is a good evolutionary decision because of the, the currency of, of life is calories. And if you have $5 and t- two apples cost $5 and two candy bars cost $5, you're going to get your calories out of the candy bars. As a long-term strategy, it's terrible. As a short-term strategy, it's fine. The problem is that in the long term, you may not be able to get access to serious amounts of money. Uh, the transfer system the transfer economy just doesn't bring much money into households. And so uh, um, this is basically the area that I look at now, uh, how people balance uh, the balance between those with jobs and how, how they share resources, not just food, but, for instance, uh, equipment, gasoline, and so on. as opposed to the way it was 40-some-odd years ago, where everybody basically was on an equal footing. And the only difference was the amount of time people, each, any individual was willing to invest in harvesting. Today, it's there are many more people who would hunt more if, in fact, they had access to that very scarce resource, money. So uh Believe it or not, that's the short form of what I'm doing these days.
0: (laughs) On that note, and I tend not to do this because I don't want this to be my interjection of an opinion, but I've always, uh, or not always, because I've only done this research or been part of this for the last two or two and a half years, um, but I'll form it as a question. Do you think paying hunters would be a solution or not a solution, but a, a viable option. There's uh, talk.
1: That some First Nations uh, groups have professionalized hunting to a degree. Um, uh, Nescapi Innu in uh, um, northeast Quebec, out of Shefferville. Uh, I don't know, maybe in some Cree communities the Guaranteed Income Support Program, which is basically a hunter support program in Nunavik, uh, hunters can get uh, uh, money provide if they provide a certain amount of their harvest to the community and so on. But overall, I don't like the idea of, of in a sense, professionalizing hunting. Uh, in a sense, even with boundaries that you may put around this the the um, it's a common property resource it's always been everyone has a right to food uh, when you professionalize it or even create markets for country food what you're doing is creating a system where essentially you're privatizing the resource and that may work fine when there's an abundance of a resource but so uh, let's say a hunter can do traditional sharing and also sell a certain amount of country food uh, so that he can capitalize his equipment and get uh, uh, have funds to operate and so on but basically uh, uh, generally Inuit object to the selling of country food there are circumstances where it does take place even in northern Quebec people find some people have issue with uh, we might say subsidizing hunting through the hunter support program because what comes into the community uh, for general use is sold at a nominal price but a number there are people who see that as running counter to the ethos that everyone has a right to food um my view is that when resources aren't abundant, we're going to create a real dilemma for those people who who are hunt who are, if you will, are supplying market and and sharing because then they're faced with the dilemma: if I don't sell, I can't hunt, but if I have a limited amount and I'm selling it, I can't share. Right. So they come with real issues and so most of the talk these days at least in policy circles is around creating markets and I have real problems with that for the reasons I just outlined Uh, also because it depends on on exactly what what one means by market if it's basically a hunter selling uh a seal or part of a seal when they comes in from hunting sort of like the open air market in nuuk in greenland where where hunters and fishermen every evening when people come in there's a a open air shed which is quite extensive maybe 30 meters long and you can buy auk you can buy whale whatever people have come in a tremendous variety of fish and i think they People who sell there pay a small amount for a table. But I suspect that increasingly we, you know, there will be inspections, packaging, and so on, all of which adds value. And pretty soon, country food will be exactly the same as imported meats in the store. On my wall out here, I have an advertisement from about four or five years ago when two of the co-ops, one in I believe Rankin Inlet and one in Cambridge Bay were advertising Christmas packages of dried arctic char and uh, caribou and each package amounted to 10 11 kilos of country food when I broke it down on a per kilo price it was about $25 per kilo which is what (laughs) you can buy steak for when when it's flown in so it really wouldn't be an answer for those people who can't who now can't afford to hunt, nor can they afford to buy steak. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, and, and on top of that is, to me, professionalizing or, and especially creating markets will change, will have a real cultural impact, uh, well beyond what people thought artifacts like snowmobiles had. It, it would It's one of those things that really does take a a piece out of Well, that's (laughs) perhaps wrong word. But uh, will have an effect on Inuit culture. Uh, uh, Artifacts are artifacts. But we're talking about deeply held social uh, uh, normative behaviors uh, of sharing, to use that term very loosely, or the way it's typically used in a loose fashion, uh, which is, is an essential quality of Inuit culture. Inuit generally, one of the things they say separates Inuit from non-Inuit is that Inuit are generous, and non-Inuit are not generous. There are exceptions, probably, <laughs> but I've had Inuit literally tell me the difference between Inuit and Kaluna is Kaluna are selfish. And, in a way, we're setting up Inuit to be selfish. Right. And that concerns me greatly uh, because there is an economy that works fine. And what we would call the traditional economy or the informal economy is actually a formal economy. It has rules just like any other economy. It, it has a regularity, and which every economy needs or you don't have an economy. And if you're related in various ways, you will always have access food. And then there are community wide uh, distributions as well. But all of that I don't know if can be, how well that can be sustained in when you have market conditions that mitigate uh, uh, hunter sharing because they have to sell in order to continue to hunt, right, in order yeah. to capitalize and operate their equipment. Professional hunting Sort of feeds into that idea that one uh, hunting is sort of uh, hunting and harvesting is is sort of an anachronism, and uh, really almost all. If you speak to Inuit males, even younger males who don't hunt or haven't started to hunt yet, simply because. They're locked up in school until at least the age of sixteen, and sometimes beyond that. Uh, which means they're not getting the training, uh, which requires, you know, pretty frequent time out with, with experienced hunters. Uh, the the programs they have in schools are pretty limited, in that regard, uh, in terms of training. Um, uh, they still will say, if I often ask. Every few years with people I know in Clyde River, a really dumb question. What makes you an Enoch? Men generally say hunting, even if they're not hunt with great frequency. Uh, women often say, along with having children, eating country food. That's probably the second thing men say. And eating country food in an Inuit fashion as well. Uh, for women, that can sometimes be the first thing that they say uh, uh, since having children is so much of a biological as well as a cultural activity but those things haven't gone away and so the idea that hunting is an anachronism uh, is maybe a view from Achaluit from but not a view that you'll find in Greece Fjord or mm-hmm. Clyde River or Arctic Bay or you know Cougar or whatever The, the interesting thing now and something I'd like to begin to do some research on uh, is the phenomenon that arose in the last four or five years of selling country food notably caribou uh, <laughs> through eBay and email uh, mainly as a response and Facebook, and Facebook <laughs> as a response to the uh, short-lived moratorium but Longer-lived, uh, ridiculous quota on caribou on Baffin Island. And perhaps there are people already doing research on this. I don't know. I'm interested in it uh, in terms of, you know, how do people, both buyers and sellers, feel about exchange that straight? What it essentially is what we would consider a straight market exchange. Amongst other things, there are questions about can caribou herds sustain uh, a harvest that not only is for domestic use, but is also for market uh, or for sale and so on. Uh, I know a lot of this started around Southampton Island at Sedlik. And uh, uh, eventually, I I gather, uh, Fish and Wildlife, uh, the Department of Environment, pretty well put a stop to the export of caribou from Southampton Island, but it still continues from Arvia and Rankin Inlet, and so on. Uh, this is a very new phenomenon. Um, uh, the only time I ever heard of selling country food was a bit to non-Inuit, uh, but caribou is a very desirable food, and uh, on the Baffin, you know, uh, certainly the, the the caribou herds are much smaller than they were just ten years ago. so the selling has become a response I'm also curious about whether that as the caribou herds rebuild on Baffin because ungulates go in cycles and caribou are believed to go in 60, 70 80 year cycles whether uh, uh, buy, people who are now buyers uh, because of scarcity of caribou will, would continue to, to buy Anyway that's sort of <laughs> tangential but it it's it's an interesting question uh, my suspicion is no but what does that happen to people who have built into their livelihood say selling caribou as well so uh, I, I would be very interested in at least sort of a pilot study that looked at uh, a couple of communities um, a Clyde River where there are buyers and Arviat or Rankin Inlet, where there are sellers, uh, and so on. Uh, but I'm mostly interested in people's view of: is this okay in a time of shortage, the selling and buying, uh, or uh, uh, might this have, you know, longer legs? I don't know. We'll see. Beyond that, uh, my other. Research and again, this is mainly through a graduate student, <laughs> is on how important women have become as producers of money, and who who then basically provide that scarce resource to uh, uh, husbands, sons, uh, for hunting, uh, because hunting, it's you know it's like fishing. If your line's not in the water, you don't catch fish. Or if you're not out on the ice or traveling inland for caribou. You're not going to catch those things. And if you have a a wage job, a full-time wage job, time is an enormous constraint. Time, it becomes a currency. And friends of mine who have full-time wage jobs, they leave work at 5. By 5.30, they're going out hunting, and they may not come back until 5 to 9 on Monday morning. The guys without money might get out once or twice a month because... They're taking maybe a little bit of money out of their family allowance. Maybe they're getting some gas from a father or brother. Uh, the guys who hunt the most in my in the study that studies that we've done are men who have wives and daughters who work, because of the 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 normative uh, uh, requirements of kinship. Uh, women are and also gender relations, women are in those positions are pretty well uh, required to supply some amounts of money. And um, my my student in particular who's worked on this, a woman named Magalie Quintel Marino, who's now finished her PhD, uh, women outright say that one of the reasons they do it is they want their kids to eat healthy food they don't want it all to be from the store and so on but clearly women I know one woman who was supporting four different men <laughs> her father, her spouse and two of her sons as hunters and in fact in a sense complained because she had been a, she was a school teacher had been at it for over 25 years and would like to retire but as she put it to me she couldn't because she had to support all these men but <laughs> uh, very welcome, happy with the food, but uh, 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 there was still that you know a, a substantial amount of money uh, was going into into harvesting. Nothing wrong with that, but it's also the case today that there are some things that might have been wants or dreams thirty years ago, or even twenty years ago, are now needs in northern communities. Every community has a wi- Every every household has a widescreen TV. Um, I've got the only place in Clyde River without electricity or running water, <laughs> <laughs> or telephone. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting. Uh, from that perspective, there are many more ways, you know, to spend money. I think it's interesting that people are still willing to put large amounts of this very scarce resource into what I think any uh, neoclassical economist would say is a money sink because it doesn't produce money. Uh, The one place hunting produces money is guiding sport hunters, and particularly polar bear sport hunters.
0: That was going to be my next question about outfitting. Okay. Okay, Sorry for the interruption. <laughs>
1: uh, well, outfitting has—I I only worked on this in the early 2000s. Uh, with when, just a, I was finishing up my work, which mainly centered on three communities: the Lodzwaq, uh Resolute Bay, and Clyde River. Um, over a two-year period. But about the time I was finishing up that research is when polar bear became you know the icon for of cli- climate change you know and I obviously much more polar bear sitting on a little ice pan is a much more appealing uh, uh image than watching ice melt basically. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, um, but it became in the course of my studies uh And each community manages its polar bear hunt differently. I I think probably most people, well, I don't know who listens to to this podcast, but polar bear are very, access to polar bear is very tightly controlled in Canada. It's the only place where, in fact, you can have a polar bear sport hunt. And that goes all the way back to the original convention on the Conservation of Polar Bear International Convention. Um whereas in the other jurisdictions, Greenland uh, uh, and Alaska, there is no sport hunting allowed. In fact, sports hunting took off in Canada when sport hunting was ended in Alaska, Uh, and Russia and Norway have banned all polar bear hunting except in in personal defense, although undoubtedly there's plenty of poaching in Russia. But going back to, to my work, it became clear to me that, because of the way the regulations around sport hunting have been written, which means the hunt has to be done by dog team, it takes people with particular skills, traditional skills, to who to guide sport hunts, which often means uh, older people who, for various reasons, sometimes linguistic, don't have access to other aspects of the monetary economy and uh, it's very possible for instance at Resolute Bay where uh, there were a tight group uh, a small group of five or six trained guides including a woman uh, uh, who guided all members of an extended family uh, uh, and because Resolute is a small community of 170 people, uh, with a very high polar bear quota of about 35 bears, they were about there were 20 to 25 sport hunts a year, and so if you guided three hunts, you could earn eighteen thousand dollars in a 30-day period. Uh, Most hunts, the max maxed out at, at between 10 and 14 days. Ideally, you would take a sport hunter out and he would get a bear in the first couple of days. Mm-hmm. That's perfect because you're still getting your 6K <laughs> and you don't have to spend a lot of time with yeah. these guys. So uh, so for these guys, uh, for most of the guides, this was a substantial amount of the money that they, that they would earn during the year. Um, uh, they might pick up opportunistic work either in the community or taking various tourists out around Clyde River. There are skiers, there are base jumpers, there are climbers and you take them out and you know, you get X amount for the day and you pick them up in 10 days 20 days, whatever but that's really not a lot of money overall, whereas $6,000 in hand is a substantial amount of money and it's I would also point out that it's new money. Most of the money in Inuit communities is transfer monies, not just family allowance, welfare, and pensions, but since government is the largest employer, it's basically a transfer economy. This is new money that wouldn't be there otherwise. Uh, I sat down, and I began to, to, in talking to guides, became curious about it what how much of the money they earned from sports hunting guiding sports hunting excuse me uh went into their other hunting activities Uh, and what was the return from that and so i sat down with five or six friends of mine in Clyde River who had guided for Different amounts of time. I think the longest was about 12 years, the shortest about five. And uh, now this is more a guesstimate. Nobody kept records as such, uh, along with all this other stuff, the history of sports hunting and so on. To me, the, the most interesting thing was I, they were able to tell me, you know, if they had guided. 20 hunts in 10 years you could pretty well tell they had earned between ten and $12,000 uh, in, in, a, in a guiding year or a guiding season I should say and so I would ask them hey, did you buy a skidoo during that time uh, or a boat or an engine big equipment and they would say yeah I, I used $3,000 for a down payment on a snowmobile and so on and so forth and so figured out roughly how much money earned from uh, a polar bear guide, a sport hunt guiding they invested in capital equipment. In I think one guy's case, it was about 50% of the money he <laughs> earned. In other cases, it was it was never less than about 30%. And then I asked them to estimate their harvests over time of caribou, seal, narwhal. Nobody can keep count of fish. Uh. <laughs> And I didn't want to count polar bear in there. But, and I've done a lot of harvest research myself. And so if a guy gave me an estimate of, oh, I caught 100 seals, I, I have enough data on almost everybody who hunts, has hunted in Clyde in the last 40 years to know roughly if that's been close to annual production and so on. So, someone would say 40 seals and what I then did was converted that into edible biomass and then priced that biomass, shadow priced it based on the three most common imported meats bought in the store, Uh, ground beef, cheap ground beef, pork chops and chicken wings basically and then figured out What was the ratio of money invested versus return in shadow-priced food? And it worked out to about 5 dollars 5 for every dollar invested. (laughs) (laughs) Which, looking at it from a southern economist point of view, you would say, you don't see that return. But in the community, if anybody could get, if I could get a 500% return on every dollar I invested, I I would not be sitting here at McGill (laughs) 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 I'd be the smartest guy in the world next to Warren Buffett and so uh, but as I say uh, because of controls and so on uh, there's only a limited access to uh, to monies through traditional activities made even worse by since most sport hunters about 85% of the sport hunters when I was doing my research on sport hunting came from the United States now because you can't import polar bear into the United States that that clientele has dropped off, it's also an extremely expensive hunt, Yeah, it it costs almost $40,000 now Uh, it's like hunting elephant Uh, but uh, there's still a small clientele a few Canadians, but mainly East Euro- Eastern Europeans, uh, the odd Israeli, uh, Japanese, and so on. But uh, um, where in, in 2002, 2003, in a place like Resolute, uh, 25 tags being sold for sports hunting, at, we're each bringing roughly $20,000 into the community. While some of that money leaked out because you had to buy supplies for the hunt and so on, probably a good fifteen thousand dollars was being retained in the community by the for the guides for the outfitter who was an Inuk. In all the communities, the outfitters generally are Inuit, uh, and consequently, uh, that money has an impact either through the production of food, or you know, in some cases. Uh, fellow might invest in equipment that goes to his son or gas that goes to his son and so on so that's very important in terms of, of the overall harvesting economy by no means could support the the overall harvesting economy but and the, also the interesting thing was again thinking as an southern economist if polar bear each polar bear brings in twenty thousand dollars and the overall quota for Canada's roughly 500 bears I don't know exactly what it is these days then rationally Inuit should be selling all those polar bear the fact is that at its peak people sold 21% of all the bears available for hunting which suggests that hunting bears itself is an important cultural activity for Inuit because selling through private sales while it's lucrative uh Well, auction now, there's virtually no sales. But aside from private sales, uh, uh, um, really people are a hunting bear for meat and for the cultural return. If you will, the psychic income that Mm. comes, which is associated, there's a psychic income associated with all hunting, which I can otherwise describe as a cultural return. Kind of just ran out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if I, I, I have, uh, if I have anything very interesting to say beyond this. Uh, but hunting is integral, integral in cultural terms, um, interest, I- integral in economic terms. Not in terms, not so much in terms of the monetary sector of the mixed economy, but it maintains a social economy. Food is, that, is the currency of the social economy. Uh, if you want to know who's related to who, watch the flow of food. Mm. Watch who goes to eat where. Uh, I learned that in 1971, and it still pretty well works today in, in almost every Inuit community I've spent time in. The rules are a little bit different in Nunavik from North Baffin and over in, say, Talojoac than they are at Clyde River. But as an anthropologist interested in the uh, traditional economy, if you will, you have to first of all realize that that biomass is, is simply allows you to look at the social flows in a community, which is the much... Which is what economies are about anyway. And it's way more interesting. Hunting's fun. I I, I, I won't say it's not fun (laughs) uh, for people. Uh, uh, I'm not much of a hunter. Certainly not these days. Did you hunt before? I used to hunt regularly with Inuit. uh, Up until about 10, 15 years ago. But uh, especially in the winter. uh, For seal hunting. But one being, I like to eat seal a lot. So, <laughs> it is delicious. Uh, it is delicious, <laughs> and caribou hunt- hunting because you have to spend so much time walking, or used to in the summer. I finally gave that up. <laughs> I got <laughs> too old for that. But uh, um, you know, it, it is still a well-functioning economy in every sense of the word. It just—it's just that it doesn't produce money, and consequently. To many outsiders, including policymakers, it's one; it's invisible, or they don't perceive it as a real economy. And yet, it's the essence of of uh, economy. So, uh, it's one of as I going back to what I said. The I'm a little less, maybe a, a little less. Unsure about professionalizing hunting. I, my knee jerk reaction is I don't like the idea of professionalizing hunting, creating a separate class, if you will. Uh, and I very much dislike the idea of creating markets uh, as such. The only pl- place where I could see a viable reason for creating country food markets would be for some of the larger communities like Achaluid or Rankin Inlet, where um, just because of the the population size of those communities not everyone may have access to the traditional economy but on the other hand it might be prohibitively expensive for those who can't manage to muster enough money on a regular basis to hunt with frequency so.
0: well that was uh, <laughs> that was quite the quite the Tongue workout before we wrap up, or we can wrap up depending on uh, where you want to go. Uh, do you want to, would you like to share one hunting story no. or memory or anything?
1: Um, well, there are like, lots of stories. <laughs> I think one, I don't know if this will make much sense to people who, or mean much to people who listen was a going out seal hunting in the springtime with a friend of mine, um, we are both hunting by snowmobile. and In the springtime, seals are up on the ice, as you know, they're up basking, and you can see them from a considerable distance, and my friend went one way, I went another, and uh, I didn't get a shot at a seal. But I could see him. He was probably five, six kilometers away. It was a beautiful spring day in April. Really, really nice No wind. So uh, I heard him shoot, and I saw him drive over, and put something up on his lift, what I thought was a seal, and put it on his (laughs) kamatik. And uh, so I... Stopped. I got out my grub box. I started making tea, expecting he would come over, and the next thing I know, I look over and I can hear his snowmobile going away. He's heading off, and there's a small island a few kilometers away, and he goes over to the island. I can't see him. He's behind on the backside of the island or behind it, and he finally comes over, making tea, and and I look over and there's no seal on his sled. maybe he cashed the seal didn't say anything uh, so we have tea and we continued for the day and a couple of days later I was over at his dad's place and finally like, we were eating seal actually and I said to him is this the seal you shot the other day and he said oh, I didn't shoot a seal I saw you shoot and I saw you put something on your comet dick he said oh it was a dog (laughs) and apparently what happened this this was the days before we had telescopic sights. we were both hunting with iron sights and uh, my friend when the seal's up on the ice they'll often melt a depression out next to the breathing hole just from body heat and a seal's head looks very much like a medium-sized dog's mm-hmm. head. And so I think the dog put his head up. Well, it must have been the case. The dog put his head up. My friend saw it. He's much better shot than I am. And from about 60, 70 meters away, shot a seal, or what he thought was a seal, came up It was a dog. So I said, well, okay, but why did you go over to Umilyuk, this island? And he said, uh, well, I was over taught that you never left land animals on the ice Mm. and so he went out of his way to take the dog over and put it on the island Uh, in terms of when people again hunting has there's a value system and ultimately an ontology that underpins Inuit hunting, underpins Inuit knowledge, just like there's an ontology that underpins our knowledge system. Uh, uh, Those ontologies may clash from time to time and often do, particularly around wildlife. But I I basically have told you that, that little anecdote or parable to tell you how seriously people take those other aspects of hunting. Okay.